Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, November 7th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on this podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Squatch Rambui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, let's start things off with what we've been doing. Uh, last week, I think we talked on Halloween Day, I went to the West Hollywood Halloween Carnival, which is not really a carnival. It's more of like a street party. It takes up one mile of Santa Monica Boulevard, and it's just uh, really crazy. Everybody in costumes. Uh, it's it's said to be the biggest Halloween party in the world. I'm not sure about that claim. But uh, we did do a vlog about it on Ordinary Adventures. You can check that out. I'll link that in the show notes. It, it was fun. Uh, it, it's always great to see, like, what kind of wacky costumes people come up with, especially, uh, you know, like the custom-made costumes, not like the store-bought stuff. Uh, but I was just wearing a store-bought, like a, a hot dog costume I bought from Target, and uh, Kitra was a hamburger. So we, we had matching costumes, and everybody wanted to get photos with us, uh, which was crazy because i didn't even think there were good costumes we just like bought them off the rack at target um but what else have i been doing i of course last weekend i uh, went to disneyland because i do that like two or three times a month uh and uh this time i was going there to check out the new uh christmas merch because they've christmas time has already begun in uh walt's original magic kingdom and uh we did a video on that i'll link that in the show notes i won't spend too much time on this uh but the the other thing we did was kitra built a droid in Galaxy's Edge. Uh, when Galaxy's Edge first opened, I built an R2 unit droid. You can build an R2 R unit or a BB unit droid. And uh, Kitra didn't have the money at the time to buy it, uh, to build a droid. But uh, everybody on our YouTube channel was like, Kitra needs to build a droid. And she just wanted to build a droid. So she built a droid and she built uh, a BB unit. And uh, we made a video on that and released that yesterday. That link is also in the show notes. Uh, but I will say that if you are thinking of going to Galaxy's Edge and building a droid, 
which costs you about $100. You go into this place called Droid Depot, and you actually pick out the parts, and it's fully customizable. I think they said something like there's like 100,000 different combinations. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but um, I would say probably get an art unit droid because the BB unit droids, the heads, like they're really hard to control. And the heads, like, fall off very easily. If you've ever had one of those Sphero BB-8 unit droids, um, it's kind of like that, but it's probably even worse because it's, you know, a bigger thing. And also, to shut off the the droid, you actually have to, like, open up uh, BB the BB unit's, like, body, like the, the, the soccer ball, to, like, turn it on and off, which seems really stupid but anyways you can watch our our video of us building it and our review of that bb unit droid i'll put that link in the show notes uh but i i would recommend get uh uh, like building a droid i would just say do an r unit droid not a bb unit droid jacob what have you been up to uh my week was unexciting so i'll talk about buying a new hat peter i bought a new hat (laughs) i have seen you in a hat before jacob it's usually the same hat uh yeah um Typically, I have always worn a flat hat. If you've met me in real life, if you have seen pictures of me or video of me, I am always wearing a trusty hat. I usually have only owned one at a time because I have a very large head, a 24-inch head, and walking into a hat store usually means not finding a hat that fits me. Uh, But I found a website. um, Actually, interestingly, I bought a hat while I was in Colorado for the Dr. Sleep visit at a uh, a, uh, hat and leather store, and it fit me right away, so I immediately replaced my old hat with it. I found the brand that supplied the hat had a website, and it's ConnorHats.com. So if you have a large head, ConnorHats.com is actually really fantastic uh, for the amount of variety and options and head sizes. So uh, with my new newfound interest in being outdoors after that trip, I bought a um, – what's it called? Uh, it's an Australian uh, leather hat, a traveler hat. It's sort of halfway point between a cowboy hat and a fedora. It's made of tough leather, uh, waterproof um, – uh, has uh, can protect from the sun. It can be crushed up and immediately regains its shape. Uh, it just really it fits me perfectly. Uh, and I've never found a hat like this that fits me well. So if you're like me and love hats, but always had trouble hat shopping, and uh, this place is going to be uh, a website to check out. It's ConnorHats.com. And if you also, as a bonus, they uh, have all the methods of how they make their hats and all the resources used. And they talk about you know how biodegradable everything is and the stuff they they don't use to be environmentally safe. So it seems like a really good company, and um, if you want hats, ConnorHats.com. It's not a plug um, that you're paying for, by the way. I just really, really like ConnorHats.com. So you bought a traveler hat. Does that mean you can only wear it when you're traveling? I do intend to keep my flat cap for uh, urban use, going out about out in the town. But if I'm ever <laughs> going to go for a like a walk in the rain, or if I'm going to be like on a hike, I'm going to be wearing my traveler hat for sure. Okay, cool. Uh, ben, I saw on Instagram that you went to something really special. You went to a table reading of an unproduced Brian K. Vaughn script, which I loved when I first read it. Uh, can, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I went and saw a live read of Brian K. Vaughn's Roundtable, and Brian K. Vaughn is the guy behind Why the Last Man and Saga and you know tons of great comics over the years. He has also written on shows like Lost. I think he was the showrunner of season one of Under the Dome when that was on CBS back in the day. Um, but he, about 10 years ago, I remember reading a Slash Film article about this, and I, I looked through our archives, and it's still there from 2008. We, we wrote this article saying that DreamWorks had acquired the screenplay that he wrote for a movie called Roundtable, 
and I will read the uh, description, the logline of this screenplay. When an ancient evil returns to terrorize modern-day England, legendary wizard Merlin must assemble a new roundtable, only to learn that today's knights aren't noble warriors, but athletes, businessmen, and celebrities like Sir Michael Caine. So that's the description. Uh, this script was picked up, but it never actually got produced, and it ended up on the blacklist, which is the uh, annual list of the you know the best unproduced screenplays of every year. And nothing ever happened with it until the Blacklist uh, started doing these live read events where I think a few times a year they choose um, scripts that have never been produced and, and bring a whole great cast together to do these live read performances. So that's what happened uh, last week. And I got to check out this one for Roundtable. And it was so much fun. Um, I, I It sort of feels like a script that was written about 10 years ago. Like, I, I feel like if it were actually to be made today, some of the character dynamics might be changed a little bit. Um, but it's it's full of uh, Brian K. Vaughn-isms and in terms of, like, um, undercutting expectations and, like, lots of really, really funny humor and um, playing with structure in an interesting way. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought it was a lot of fun. And he actually said after it was over that there's been, because of this live read, there's been some interest in once again trying to bring this story to the screen. So uh, it's possible that maybe this will actually get turned into a movie at some point. But um, the cast was terrific. It was uh, Jay Farrow and Joe Latrulio were sort of like supporting players. Um, Natasha Rothwell from Insecure was Morgana, the uh, the ancient villain. Uh, Taryn Killam from Saturday Night Live played Merlin. Uh, Chris Gere from You're the Worst was the like the narrator. He read the stage directions of the whole thing. And then um, Anthony Kerrigan, who plays uh, Noho Hank on Barry, and Lauren Lapkus, who's a, a you know a great UCB improviser and has been in a ton of stuff, um, were sort of like the romantic leads of the thing. And then uh, Tony Hale from Arrested development and toy story 4 did the voice uh, he played sir michael kane who like <laughs> if this were to be a movie he would have to play himself in it and um yeah so that was that was a lot of fun uh the script is called round table so maybe keep an eye out if uh, a studio ends up deciding to put this thing back into into development yeah and i'm not so sure but i know it used to be easy to google that script and find it on the web that i would assume that's still the case but, uh, yeah, yeah I, I think if you search some script forums, uh, you could probably find it. And I, I would highly recommend checking it out. And I, I hope one day that they do make it. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. What else? Uh, I also I had a chance to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood again. Um, this, uh, I think it was a couple days ago, they did a screening at the New Beverly Theater in here in L.A. And that is the theater that Quentin Tarantino owns. I, despite having lived in L.A. for 10 years, have somehow never been to the New Beverly, which is like... Uh, you know, a, a huge embarrassment on my part. I feel like a, a failing as a, a member of the cinephile community of this town. But I, I figured, you know, what better opportunity to make this my first appearance at the New Beverly than to watch uh, a movie that Tarantino himself wrote and directed and also um, one that featured a Q&A with Tarantino, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie right afterwards. So um, that was really great. And I actually wrote an article about the Q&A afterwards. Maybe we can link that in the show notes, um, sort of breaking down some of the highlights from that conversation after um, especially DiCaprio and Tarantino talking about that uh, Rick Dalton freakout scene in his trailer during that Western pilot that they're shooting in the movie. Um, that actually wasn't in the script originally, and you can read about how that scene came to be uh, by clicking the link in the show notes. 
I'm actually really shocked that you have never been to the New Beverly before this. Like, yeah, uh, me too. I don't. I don't know. I can't. I have no. Uh, no way to justify my behavior. I'm. I'm saddened and shocked and ashamed of myself. <laughs> yeah. New Even Be- I went to the New Beverly, and I only lived in LA for like half a year. <laughs> yeah, I remember once talking to Ryan Johnson, and he told me when he first moved to LA, he picked his apartment location based on the proximity to New Beverly. So I I doubt he lives at that same place now, but uh, I think that that's funny. Anyways, okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Ben, did you uh, you read or you're still reading the Game of Thrones books that were sent to you? Yeah. So the the next one that I finally got a chance to to make my way through, I have um, two more. So this one and and one more. Hopefully, I'll I'll be able to finish that for next week's episode. But uh, the photography of Game of Thrones is the book that I sort of made my way through this week, Um, and it is a book that comprises a bunch of the still photography taken on the set from Helen Sloan, who is the set photographer of the show, and her work on this. you know, the the photography work that she did, not only like uh, literally on the sets of the show, but also in terms of like creating ad campaigns and stuff for HBO for Game of Thrones is really, really gorgeous stuff. Um, I, I love flipping through this and just looking, th- you know, like revisiting these moments of the show. That being said, I was a little disappointed with the book overall because I wanted it to be more behind the scenes stuff. And there is some of that, but it's mostly just um, major uh, recreations or, or um, I, I don't know, it, it kind of feels like a series of screenshots because the the a lot of what you see in the book is so close to the camera angles that actually appear in the show that it's like you can't tell if this is actually something that was captured like within the cinematography of, <laughs> of the show itself or if uh, Helen Sloan was just like right next to the the camera operator and managed to take this photo like they're so they look equally good but um and so if you're like a a fan of photography then this is absolutely worth checking out but um for somebody who's looking for like maybe a little bit more insight into the production and and seeing what the cast was doing you know in their downtime and all that there's a, a few glimpses of that throughout this book but for the most part it's just um you know concentrated on uh the photos themselves of like during the actual production and not necessarily of the behind the scenes stuff. So anyway, that's the photography of game of Thrones and it's out, uh, I think tomorrow or maybe actually, let me see. Oh, it's out or it was out on November 5th. So it's out right now. If you want to check that out. Very cool. Okay. HT, what have you been reading? I stumbled upon this little web comic or webtoon called Lore Olympus, and it's this sort of retelling of the myth of uh, Hades and Persephone. And I, until now, have prided myself in not being one of those people who romanticize that particular myth because it's one that's very popular uh, amongst people who amongst a lot of fangirls I have to say and and yet I ended up stumbling upon this and reading the entire thing uh, it's a really sweet and really fun web comic that is basically sort of like a modern retelling of um, this the Greek mythology uh, in which you know Hades and Persephone um, well, in the original myth, Hades abducts Persephone and brings her down to the underworld to be his queen. And he tricks her into staying in the underworld for, I think, three months uh, so that by giving her a pomegranate and she eats only three seeds. But here it is turned into much more of a traditional romance, uh, very much in the style of Beauty and the Beast, which is kind of my catnip. So I ended up <laughs> reading the entire thing. And um, it actually is quite creative, um, and the the drawing style by um, 
the author, Rachel Smith, is actually really, um, it's simple, but really just fun and, um, and colorful and, and uh, engaging to read. And um, it's, uh, it's not just the Hades and Persephone myth, it actually goes further into other uh, myths from Greek mythology, which is something that I've always really enjoyed. When I was young, I used to just read Greek myths for fun because I was a cool kid. Um, but it's uh, it's quite interesting and it's still ongoing. It started, I think, in 2017 and is about 80 chapters in. I read the entire thing in like a day, so now I have to wait week per week now. Hmm. But um, a fun fact about this is that apparently Laura Olympus is being turned into a YA animated series uh, in partnership with the Jim Henson Company. So that's hmm. something that I just discovered while I was um, stumbling upon this. And uh, it's it's a little uh, juvenile, it's a little simplistic, but it is really fun and sweet. And uh, while it does feel very much like a uh, real, like very romantic, targeted towards young girls uh, series that reminds me a little bit of my like Tumblr uh, fangirl days. It's It actually is quite well drawn and um, has a pretty rich world that Rachel Smith created for herself. So I, yeah, that's Lore Olympus. That's available online on the website Webtoons. I'll put that link in the show notes. At first you called it a webcomic, then you corrected yourself and said a webtoon. What is the difference? Yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I it is a web comic, but I think the because it's on the web on the webtoons website, it's also a webtoon. Web so, but yeah. it's not animated in any way. No, it's not animated. It's a web comic. Okay, cool. Uh, let's move on to what we've been watching uh, this week. We, well, actually, last week we got sent the screeners for the Disney Plus. TV shows, the original Disney Plus TV shows, but now we can finally talk about them. And I know uh, b both Brad and myself have watched a bunch of these, so we're going to start this off with the Imagineering story. This is the one I was most excited to see. This is from Leslie Iwerks, who is what, the granddaughter of, of Iwerks, I think, related in some way. Um, yes, and, that's correct. Yes, and uh, she did the Pixar story. She's done a bunch of documentaries, which are are very good. Uh, but also kind of like uh, very glossy and don't really uh, bring anything hugely insightful to the table. And I would say that this is kind of the same thing. Um, it, this is a, a multi-part series. It's, it's a, not a documentary. It's a, a TV show. Uh, we both got to see the first two episodes, which will air on the first week of the service. And... Uh, <clears throat> The first episode ends with Walt's passing. So the first episode deals with just Disneyland. And the second episode uh, deals with how the company is going to function in the wake of Walt and the building of Walt Disney World, Epcot, to in Tokyo Disneyland. So the, the, I think the one thing I was disappointed the most about the series is I was hoping with this being you know an eight-part series that we'd get so much time to delve into these topics in a – more meaningful way but when you spend you know an hour-long episode on the making of disneyland and th that's like you know you move on from there like it feels like an hour long is not enough to deal with that you know waltz disneyland um that said i think this is extremely enjoyable this is probably the best show i've seen on disney plus um so far i have not seen the mandalorian um it uh it it try you know it it tries to tackle too much per episode, but I feel like 
for some people that don't know all the stuff that it might be very educational and there's some really emotional moments like Bob Gurr, the guy that created uh, the the monorail and the Matterhorn. He, we get to see him like walk inside the Matterhorn or inside the Matterhorn. If you don't know, there's actually like a uh, a basketball uh, net board, whatever you want to call that, um, it, it, whatever. So it's the and there's like. All around the walls is every everybody who has worked on the attraction over the years has signed the walls, and Bob Gurr has never signed the wall, so we get to see him sign the wall for the first time, and it's a it's a really emotional moment. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, Brad, you're you're not as obsessed with the Disney theme parks as I am, but I know you like them, so I'm wondering what what your thoughts are on these first two episodes. Yeah, so th- this was definitely my favorite of the uh, shows that were made available to us uh, as screeners for Disney+. And as somebody who is not quite as diehard uh, or knowledgeable on uh, the formation of Disneyland and all of the behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, this was actually a, a pretty interesting watch for me because the- there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know. Uh, and while I do think it does have that glossy feel of uh, a documentary about Disneyland and Walt Disney's endeavors that is uh, obviously approved by Disney... Um, I think it does also dive into some of the, you know, flaws that Disney had, at least as a creator, and uh, while also, you know, still honoring his his legacy. Just because, like, you see how a lot of the things that came together for the park were kind of miraculous, when nobody really knew exactly what they were doing or what they were building or what this would become. Um, So, yeah, I was was definitely fascinated by this. There's there's a lot to, uh, to learn if you're not somebody who has read a ton of Disney theme park history or anything like that. Um, the most impressive thing to me was uh, the archival footage that they have in here because it looks incredible. Like, it looks like HD footage that they almost could have shot some kind of reenactment, you know, and, and dramatized it um, because it's I, I couldn't believe the quality of the footage that they, they had from that was shot during the building of Disneyland. It, uh, it looks it doesn't look like it's like aged very much or deteriorated anyway. Whoever remastered this footage for this documentary did an incredible job. Um, and yeah, the, the interviews from people are, are insightful. It's, it's great to get, you know, insight from people who actually worked on all this stuff, the ones who are still surviving. And it focuses on really interesting little details that, you know, you don't get from the more generic kind of uh, profiles on Disneyland and Walt Disney. Yeah, I, I, I feel like what I want is I want a show where each episode is like an hour-long episode and we like deal with the, the history of Pirates of the Caribbean and we go through like, you know, things in depth. I want more depth, but uh, I do agree with you. Some of that footage of the uh, like the construction of Disneyland is some stuff I've never seen and I've definitely never seen it in that quality. Um, it, it's pretty pretty impressive. I, I would highly recommend it and I'm excited to watch more whenever they release more episodes i'm, I'm totally good that's gonna be my jam uh yeah they'll be releasing new episodes every week and, and just FYI, it's a six-part series not eight. Oh, six part well that yeah, makes more it's sense it's interesting peter uh we ran a review of this show today from josh spiegel one of our disney experts and he really echoed everything this conversation said which was he's a really really big disney theme park fan he said that he did not learn anything, but he enjoyed and loved all the new footage that was restored. But he, he predicted in his interview that, sorry, in his review, that people who are not familiar with Disney theme park design will be bowled over by it and like <laughs> want to learn more. So I, I really feel yeah. like uh, I feel like people like who already know this stuff may find it pleasant, but people who um like, like Brad who may not have his nose in history like we we do are going to be like really thrilled by this. Yeah, and, and I I will say that she's not like 
she doesn't ignore the ugly aspect. Like, she does mention, like, the strike and stuff like that. But it's kind of, like, offhandedly mentioned. And, uh, like, kind of, you know, let's move on. <laughs> so, uh, Yeah, that, that actually made me laugh. Because it, it's literally, like, just, like, a one-line throwaway thing. It's, like, uh, Disney, who had become tired of union striking workers. And it's, like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What's going <laughs> on here? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, the next show I want to talk about is The World According to Jeff Goldblum. And this series is on National Geographic. It's it's part of the Disney Plus uh, service, and it stars Jeff Goldblum. It's a nonfiction reality show where he basically tackles a topic that he doesn't know much about. I only watched the first episode, which is him exploring the world of sneakers, um, you know, like uh, sneak collecting sneakers and stuff like that, sneakerheads. And uh, I will say that the, the show on its surface – is like such like the just so over edited and what like you expect from like these kind of reality television series and it's not like you're gonna learn a ton but for some reason and it, it should not work this the show should not work but for some reason like jeff goldblum is just so wonderfully weird and seems to be genuinely having so much fun that you have so much fun watching it and at, like, like at one point uh he goes to a sneaker vlogger to learn about the world of vlogging, you know, sneaker unboxing. And uh, we get to see him learn how to do that. And we, we get like his version of unboxing a sneaker. And like I, I would watch they should create a, a, a show with Jeff Goldblum just unboxing stuff because I would totally watch that. Uh, but uh, Brad, you watched more of this than I did, I think. Yeah, I watched the first two episodes of this. Actually, I watched the sneakers one and then the second one is about ice cream. Um, and yeah, it's it, it's a very surface level kind of exploration of different sects of culture dig, and doesn't dig too deep into it, but it does have information for people who might not know about these, uh, you know, different niche areas of, of culture. And but you're, you're absolutely right. Jeff Goldblum is what makes this show work infinitely better than any other show would, because it doesn't feel like you're like what a show like this normally would because of his endless like wonder and awe and like eccentric, you know, way of speaking to people. And like, he, he just had, he's having so much fun and he, he, he's, he's so cheeky during the show too, where like, he'll, he'll be like, give like weird looks at the camera. Like what's going on, you know, like, like, and he's, he's so funny and endearing in the show that you, you end up being more fascinated by his fascination with what he's experiencing than the actual subject itself. Um, he's, yeah, he's just a, a total delight to watch. And like, <laughs> I just love just the way he says certain things and just the, the way he reacts. It's, it's always just exactly what you want Jeff Goldblum to be like in a show like this. Yeah. And he never seems to be putting it on. He never seems to be like hosting it up. Like it just seems to be yeah. him. And he'll like randomly go into like movie quotes or just like, They'll be fascinated by the weirdest aspect of things. Just... Even his, even the voiceover for the show, it, like, it's yeah, normally the voiceover for these kind of shows is kind of just a, a boring, like, oh, they clearly recorded this just in a sound booth afterwards to add context. His voiceover is so <laughs> lively. It sounds like he's, like, having fun watching the show come together, and, like, his, his commentary is, is, like, even full of, of, of passion. Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, the next one we want to talk about is Marvel Hero Project. And this is another nonfiction uh, reality series. This is, uh, you know, under the Marvel brand. And basically every 
episode, they focus on a different person. The first episode, is, which is the one I saw, uh, focuses on Jordan, a young girl born without uh, a forearm. And she discovered 3D printing and became an activist and invented a forearm attachment that can spray glitter. That sounds ridiculous, but did you see it happen? And uh, they basically, each, each episode, they're picking someone... Uh, someone out there in this world that is a real life hero and they surprise them at the end with a comic book of making them a hero. Uh, this show is, it's endearing, it's empower, empowering, but it's, uh, it's also very like f- fluffy. I don't know. It feels very much what you think it's going to be. Uh, Brad, I think you saw the first two episodes of this. I just watched the first one, um, okay. but I'm, I'm right there with you though. It, it, it doesn't feel like, it should be a full-fledged TV series with like a 25-minute episode. It feels like it should maybe be like a 10-minute web series documentary. And that's not to undermine how incredible like the stories of these kids are who are overcoming obstacles and you know dealing with ad- adversity and doing all these incredible things because their stories are fantastic. But the the way they put together the show, it doesn't feel like what they have sustains a TV show. And at the end of the day even though it's cool that these kids get to become a comic book character as part of this Marvel hero project, that almost feels anticlimactic when you see all the other cool things that these kids are getting to do and how they're <laughs> inspiring people. Like they, they make this big presentation about it and it's like, Oh cool. Marvel supports these kids and they're making donations, but it almost feels like they're really just patting themselves on the back. Uh, because like, like this girl, Jordan in the first episode, like she, she, she's done like a Ted, uh, a young Ted talk. And she, her uh, creation for her forearm was featured in Chicago Museum of Science and Industry. And then, and then it's like, and here, now you're a comic book character. And it's like, uh, cool, I guess, you know? Um, so <laughs> well, she I seemed about, excited about it, Brad. Yeah, for, I'm sure, I'm sure it's great for kids. Cause these are, these are younger kids. They're kids who are like in, uh, in their, you know, lower teen years. Um, some of them are a little bit older, but I'm, I'm sure it's very cool. You know, I, I'd love to become a Marvel comic yeah. book character too, but it just, I don't know. The, the show didn't entirely work for me, but it is very endearing and inspiring. I guess I'm just wondering, like, who is the audience for the show? Because it is a little bit of a tearjerker, like, hearing these stories. But, like, are kids going to be interested in watching these? Like, it, it seems kind of, like, too fluffy and positive like i feel like when i was I don't a kid know. I, I think i think kids would would like this if, so? if only because yeah if only because like it's i think it's inspirational for kids to like especially kids who may may you know have the same uh you know uh obstacles to overcome that they you know they might be inspired and see you know more kids who are like them and you know feel seen if anything it's it pushes for the idea of representation which is you know yeah. something that marvel and disney have really been pushing and i think i think will work for for that audience but but yeah like on a, on a documentary level on a on a purely entertainment level, I, I think the show needs to be maybe be a little bit shorter. Yeah. I mean, you had access to more episodes. We both had access to more episodes, and we didn't watch them. So I think that probably says something. Uh, you watched a couple of those shows I didn't get to watch that are uh, musical-based. Do you want to tell us about High School Musical, the musical, which is the worst title for a thing it, ever? It's actually called High School Musical, the musical, the series, Peter. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, for, I, I even messed it up. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Um, so this is a a, a mockumentary uh, series that takes a cue from High School Musical, but is not based in the world of the original film franchise that started on Disney Channel, ended up going to theaters for its third installment. And basically, the premise of the show is uh, is it's set at the actual high school where the original High School Musical franchise was shot, 
and the new drama teacher decides that they are finally going to mount their own high school stage production of High School Musical. Um, and from there, it kind of has the the general, you know, uh, teen drama, romantic triangle kind of thing, and like the they're they're auditioning for the show, and it has a very Glee feel to it. Um, as somebody who has never seen any of the original High School Musical movies, I was like, hmm, I wonder what this is going to be like. And I, as somebody who enjoyed the first few seasons of Glee, uh, the show is fairly enjoyable. It doesn't feel quite as over the top or uh, exaggerated as Disney Channel shows and movies typically do. Um, it, it it almost feels like the kind of show that I would have loved to watch if it was on TGIF on ABC back during the 90s. Uh, the kids in the show are are fantastic, and the their musical performances especially are are solid. Um, I'm not sure if it's something that I'll keep watching because like I I didn't dislike it, but I also didn't feel compelled to like oh I'm I'm gonna stick with this. Um, but I I'm I do wonder what actual you know High School Musical fans will think of it because. While High School Musical is at the center of it, it's not, you know, uh, overpouring, I guess, you know, with with references or homages beyond, you know, that thing. It's it's definitely trying to be uh, its own show. And you also watched Encore. Yeah, so this is a a reality series that takes um, the cast members of High School Musicals and plays from years past. Uh, and brings them together as adults to do a new staging of that musical with uh, a lot of the students reprising their parts as adults. And, and by uh, the way, you, you, when you say cast members, you're not talking about like professional Broadway cast. You're talking about no. Like... These are these are high, these are were kids in high school who were in the drama club and what, did plays. Uh, sometimes not even necessarily on purpose, just because they were accidentally put into a class. As the first episode has one person. Uh, who was just accidentally scheduled into a drama class and was was in the play, and so it's uh, it's hosted by Kristen Bell. She's not present much in the first episode though, so I'm not sure how active she is as a host. She she shows up in the beginning to introduce the show, and then shows up at the end for like moral support for the play and to introduce it. But otherwise, it's 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 focused on just the um, getting these people back together, having a sort of high school reunion, and what they're all doing now, and then trying to get back into that mindset of performing. And obviously because they, some of these people have aged so much, this first episode is like a class of 1996. And so some of them don't really sing too as well as they did in high school. Um, some of, you know, there, there's discussion of, you know, things that happen in high school. There's no real drama that comes from the high school aspect of getting these people back together. But, uh, but there is like the drama of trying to get them to perform and putting the show on, which comes together in five days, which is kind of an insane thing to do for, you know, a musical production. Uh, but they do bring in, like, Broadway professionals to to direct the play and do the, the hair and makeup and sets and whatnot. And it's mildly entertaining. Um, I think, th- really, the mileage will vary depending on how fond your memories are of high school and whether or not you were one of the drama kids. Because I can easily see uh, theater kids being excited about this and liking this kind of flashback. Um, I, I did a couple plays when I was in high school, and, and I, I definitely enjoyed that time. But he, even then, like I was the, watching the show, it just it just feels a little too much of the the kind of reality TV that I that I don't go out of my way to watch too often. Okay, uh, let's move on to one l- last thing for me and Brad. Uh, we both caught up on Watchmen. Uh, I saw the second. I actually rewatched the pilot and saw the second and third episodes along with Kitra, who liked it but didn't love it. Um, I I am just so amazed that this show exists like this show is so weird it's so like 
doesn't care if you get it or not. And uh, I, I, I love that. The music is just amazing. Um, I'm not sure exactly if it's... Uh, I don't know. I, I think I'm more in admiration of it than in love with it. But I'm I'm going to be watching it from week to week. Brad, what, what do you think of Watchmen? Yeah, I'm enjoying the hell out of the show. I, I wish I'd have been on board from the beginning just so I could have uh, kept up with the, all the talk after the episodes. And now that I am caught up, I'm going to try and stay that way. Um, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that it's kind of amazing that the show exists in its form because it, it really, you know, has a lot of Watchmen mythology stuff in it. And it's not, you know, spoon feeding you references or details or anything like that. It's kind of letting you figure it out uh, along the way. And I'm... I'm very fascinated as where, as to where the show is going and ultimately what it has to say because Watchmen, you know, being one of the you know greatest graphic novels of all time uh, and having a lot of uh, social commentary and ties to you know things like mythology and that kind of thing, I'm I'm wondering if this show can satisfy in the end and really go someplace that is uh, as provocative as it, as it seems to be. But everyone in the show is so good. I I, I am very excited to see how, how it continues. I'm glued to these characters i'm i'm fascinated by the developments and i'm just i'm wondering where it's all going yeah it also seems like one of those shows that like almost requires that water cooler discussion week to week like it requires like i i know we've been doing this watchman podcast every monday i've not caught up on the second and third episode versions but like i feel like you need to know you know after seeing that first episode you you need to know that that thing in the be- the whole thing in the beginning it was a thing that happened and read up on that and like read these little bits that you know are being put out with PD, PDpedia and all that kind of stuff. I feel like it's uh, if you're not a fan, it's a hard show to catch up with. Um, but I, I think many of the people that are going to be into this are going to be a fan and are going to, you know, stick their, their feet into like that entire expanded world. And I'm glad that we, we have a podcast every week on this, uh, on this website that people can uh, explore it. Um, but uh, Jacob, Let's get to someone else. Let's talk to someone else. Me and Brad have been talking for way too long. Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, not as much. Not even close. This is a very bare-bones week for me due to some travel and personal issues. But I did see the most important film of 2019, Peter, and that is The Gallows Act 2. What? <laughs> uh, I think Chris remembers The Gallows, uh, if you want to chime in at all here, right? Chris, tell about The Gallows. I want to hear your, you describe The Gallows to the folks at home. Uh, the Gallows is a found footage movie about a cursed high school play, and there's a supernatural murderer called the Hangman, and he <laughs> kills people with a ghost noose. It's really bad. Uh, see, uh, where Chris is wrong is that the Gallows is actually pretty okay. I don't, I don't hate the Gallows at all. It's, it's, it's look okay. It's bad by all typical standards uh but i find i found the, the gallows very easy to watch um yes by conventional standards of good movies it's a bad movie <laughs> yeah by by conventions of found footage horror movies it's pretty okay uh the sequel <laughs> but from the same people uh i think i, I rented it on amazon i don't think it ever came to theaters it is not found footage it is it looks like a disney channel movie it has a kind of glossy cinematography it's set in a high school where a girl an aspiring actress Read from the cursed play on YouTube and summons evil ghosts to start to make your life a living hell. But she wants those likes, so she keeps on reading about the, from, from the cursed play on YouTube to get them likes, and it keeps on making her life worse. 
So uh, it is not very subtle about that. Uh, this movie's very bad, but also incredibly watchable. It is not boring. It is um, incredibly entertaining to watch. Uh, just total junk. And I love any movie that casts a 31-year-old actor as, the, as, as a high school student. Like, there are there's scenes where her main character and her boyfriend, she's clearly maybe 19, 20 He's clearly in his 30s, and it is hilarious to watch him interact, him try to look like he's a high school student. Uh, the Gallows Act 2, you probably shouldn't waste your money on it for a rental, but I did, and I had a good time. That's the Gallows Act 2. I'm not even, I'm not even sure that like, the Gallows needed a sequel. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially since it's so disconnected. Other than the curse play, it is completely different, and the ending had me screaming at the TV because it's such a bad ending. Uh, so if that, <laughs> if that has you intrigued, the Gallows Act 2, I'm sure it'll be streaming for free somewhere but if you want to spend a few bucks uh i got on amazon so go go out be happy uh i also uh netflix uploaded a bunch of new jeopardy collections and jeopardy is the greatest game show of all time so i've been binging all the new jeopardy episodes and goodness i'm gonna miss alex trebek so much because i know he's ill and i'm hoping he has many years ahead of him but what a talented like high wire act he does as host where he has to be the scolding professor and like a mischievous like trickster and the smartest guy in the room and just he's doing so much and i watching these episodes back uh man what a what a talented gig this guy had i mean we don't give like a really good host somebody who manages to make you feel welcome at home in their game show is just there's a very specific unique talent there and as much as i enjoy watching jeopardy for the trivia and for educate, ed- educating myself and for shouting the answer as fast as i can because i like to play along I'm just go- what a what a classy performer he is in yeah. terms of putting on a show. They, they, they yeah. don't they don't make hosts of game shows like that anymore. I feel like it's this like it's almost like the same thing with animated uh, movies. Like you know there was that whole era of like uh, of Katzenberg where he put these big stars in the lead roles of the animated movies. And now now with new game shows, you just get like these C list actors and actresses taking the role of the game show host and you don't have the level of someone like Alex Trebek. Yeah. And when they cast these uh, C-list celebrities, uh, their job is to be wowed by the contestants to be like, Oh wow. This is so exciting. I'm so, I'm so impressed and happy with you. Whereas Alex Trebek's tone is very much, I expect you to do well. If you don't do well, it's your problem, not mine. And it's, it seems harsh, but he manages to pull it off in ways really likable. And I don't know how he does it. And I, I, I just love watching it. Yeah. Uh, how do they collect Jeopardy on Netflix? Like, is it collected into like different, like how how do they categorize it? Uh, they do it. Uh, each collection is uh, typically a tournament, like a tournament of champions where they bring back famous people, or like you know a um, special, you know week long event. Uh, one of the collections in the new batch is the Buzzy Cohen collection. Buzzy Cohen was a um, controversial champion who lasted for quite a few episodes. Uh, uh, and they sort of have all of his episodes together. So it's just a combination of like episodes that are grouped together in ways that make for a satisfying binge watch, whether they're a tournament or, you know, one champion doing well for a period of time. Okay, let's move on to Chris. Chris has actually been watching some movies, uh, movies in the theater. Chris, tell us about them. Yes, I finally saw Parasite, the movie that almost everyone on this podcast has already talked about uh, several times already. And I have nothing different to add to it other than saying yes it is excellent. Um, it's not my, it's probably not my number one movie of the year, but it is in my top five. But, uh, you know, it's one of those movies where you should believe the hype because Parasite is really as good as people are say- saying it is, maybe even better. So Parasite, 
It's good. There's a hot take for you. <laughs> I feel so bad for not having seen this yet. Okay. It's definitely worth seeing. And then I also saw Midway. Which, which is even is... better, right? No. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> it's so, so bad. Um, this probably is the worst movie I've seen all year. Uh, it's, you know, it's basically a remake of Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor and Pearl Harbor is a better movie. So that will tell you everything you need to know about Midway because Pearl Harbor is not good, but it at least is watchable. Unlike Midway, which I wanted to end as soon as it started. So there you have it. I saw one of the best movies of the year and one of the worst movies of the year in the same week. Okay. Uh, Ben, what have you been watching this week? So on Halloween night, I had maybe the strangest double feature that anyone has ever had. Like I, I, after it was over, I asked, I turned to my wife and I was like, do you think anyone has ever watched these two movies back to back? And the double feature was the haunting from 1963, which was directed by Robert wise. And then the 1994 version of little women. And so this was Halloween night. So the haunting makes sense, right? A scary movie on Halloween. Uh, and the reason that we watched Little Women immediately afterwards was because it was leaving Netflix uh, that night. So um, I, I knew about that because I wrote the article at Slash Film. We write a, a couple articles every month about the movies that are coming and going from Netflix. So I knew that this one, you know, the clock was ticking if I wanted to watch this version of Little Women. And since uh, Greta Gerwig has a new version coming out uh, next month, I, I had never seen the 94 version. I wanted to check that out. So that's that's the explanation of why we did this. So uh, really quickly on each of the movies i thought the haunting was really good um i i, I think this is i don't know jacob maybe you can speak to this because i feel like this is probably a movie that you love this is this this felt to me like a jacob movie i saw this projected to 70 millimeter a few years ago ben it is one of the scariest damn movies in the theater i love it okay so that's the thing uh i didn't really find it that scary so i i, I feel like i've said that a lot about horror movies recently on this podcast but um i loved the style of it i love the craft of it i love the cinematography the acting everything i mean even the like the lead uh who's the lead in it it's um julie harris i think uh plays the the main person and like I don't like throwing around the term hysterical um, because it it's gotten uh, it, it's taken on you know sexist overtones or or, or maybe a, a better way to describe it would be like people have finally um, started calling out the sexist overtones that have always been there with that word. But this this character is truly hysterical throughout this whole movie. Like that's sort of the point of the movie is her sort of mental breakdown as she visits this. Um, this basically a haunted house. Uh, so her performance sort of like by the end of the movie, I was like, okay, take it down like one notch, please. But the whole rest of the movie, I really appreciated, you know, all of the aspects that went into putting it together, the screenplay, the direction, everything, uh, especially coming from Robert, Robert Wise, who had just made West Side Story right before this, like talk about a, a 180, um, you know, stylistically and otherwise. But uh, I just didn't really find it that scary. And I think it must have been terrifying for people in 1963 when it came out. But Jacob, do you find this a, a scary movie now? I didn't find it scary when I watched it at home. I found it scary in the theater. Uh, I think the sound design of the movie is incredible. And when it's surrounding you in a big room, I found it very unsettling. So <laughs> if, you have, if, you have, if you have a chance to see it projected, it is a gorgeously shot movie. I, I, I really love this movie. But you're right. Um, I found it. It shouldn't be entertaining and you know striking when I saw it at home, but it didn't 
come to life for me until I saw projected, to be honest. Interesting. All right. So, but Ben, real, uh, real quickly, have you seen the 1999 version of The Haunting? So uh, afterwards, <laughs> we were looking this up, and I think I might have seen that in the theaters at the time, but just have never thought about it again and can barely remember anything about it. So it's, is it so worth, bad. Is it worth no. revisiting? Okay. It is such garbage. It is Jan Devant. You did Speed and, uh, and, and like other uh, 90s uh, action movies. Uh, Twister trying to uh, do a big special effects remake of The Haunting. And oh boy, it is a, it is a mess, Ben. <laughs> All right, I will uh, steer clear of that one, certainly. Um, but I do want to recommend, even though I know it, I, it just went off of Netflix, so I'm not sure how easy it's going to be to find streaming now, but I want to recommend the 1994 version of Little Women. I, I watched the uh, 1933 version from uh, George Cukor not too long ago. I talked about that on the podcast. Um, but this version I liked a lot better. I think the casting is really, really terrific. It's uh, Winona Ryder and um, Kirsten Dunst and Claire Danes. Christian Bale is in this, uh, in, you know, sort of in his like Newsies era uh, phase. Um, so it's it's young Bale and he looks, I mean, exactly the same as he does right now. So that's really entertaining to see. Um, Susan Sarandon is in it. It's, it's got a really good cast and um, I think it, it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, HT, I, I have to think that you are a big fan of this version of Little Women. Am I right about that? Oh, of course. I uh, did see the 1994 Little Women uh, quite a bit. I was a bigger fan of the book and I always really enjoyed the movie, uh, but I don't have as much of a place in my heart for the movie as a lot of my friends do. They grew up watching the movie more than me as like a sort of Christmas tradition, mm -hmm. but I really enjoy the movie, especially because Renona Ryder and, and Christian Bale are just dynamite in this. They're so charming and so cute. Christian Bale yeah. is just so cute in this movie. <laughs> it's a very cute movie overall, but it's also like I, and, and that's really, frankly, what I expected it to be going in was like, oh, this is just a, a cute kind of throwaway type of movie. But there's some real like powerhouse emotional acting going on in this thing, too. And I, I think there, it's a movie that maybe a lot of people um, grew up with and maybe others uh, uh, wrote off as just like sort of a trifle type of movie. But I think there's a lot to really dig into and really enjoy in this version of this this movie. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the new version, but um, I, I would highly recommend the 94 version of Little Women as well. I, I know HT has not seen all the versions of Little Women, but I feel like once she sees the new one, we need to get a, a definitive ranking of all the Little Women. I would be willing to do that, actually. I should do a, a marathon now of all the versions. Yeah. All the little women ranked by size. How little <laughs> they are. <laughs> Which little woman can eat the other little woman? Yes. <laughs> okay, Ben, what else are you watching? Uh, and then, so my wife and I watched the first two episodes of Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner, which is a new Netflix series uh, hosted by David Chang, who's a celebrity chef. Um, this is one of the few sort of reality shows, I guess, that we watch, but it's, it's only a four-episode season. Um, the first two episodes involve uh, Chang meeting up with Seth Rogen and touring uh, Vancouver with him. And then the second one was, who did he, what was the second one? It was... Um, uh, I know he, he hangs out with Lena Waithe in one uh, episode. And, oh, it was uh, Chrissy Teigen um, in Marrakesh. So it's basically just like um, Anthony Bourdain parts unknown light. Um, and I, I'm not sure if it's as good as uh, as Bourdain ever was. It's, it's like it's much more um, comedy based, I think. It's like them sort of joking around. And yes, they eat food and all of that and, and sort of like participate in uh, ridiculous 
shenanigans around the towns that they visit, but it, it's no, it, I think it pales in comparison to what Bourdain used to do. So anyway, it's watchable, but it's not like a great show, but that's Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner. It's on Netflix right now. And then um, speaking of something that's watchable, but not great, I watched Last Christmas, which is Paul Feig's new movie that stars uh, Amelia Clark and Henry Golding. It's a Christmas movie. Uh, it's coming out in theaters very soon. And um, this is a movie. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's tough to talk about because um there's Spoilers. Uh, yeah and i'm not gonna get into that but I, I just i will will say that uh amelia clark and henry henry golding are both really really great in it and i think um it, it's one of those movies like uh netflix's set it up where i actually like set it up a lot more than this movie but it's one of those movies where you see a romantic pairing on screen and you're like my god i hope the this pairing is in you know five more movies together because i just want to see this chemistry play out across a, a series of different um circumstances and, and scenarios so um I, I think there's a lot to like with uh, their performances in the movie i think uh the film itself is pretty ridiculous and um and <laughs> not very good really but uh but i liked watching them in it and i think ultimately their chemistry and their sort of um, electricity raised the movie up a little bit for me. Um, I would give it maybe like a, a gentleman six. Hmm. Okay. Uh, let me move on to what I've been watching. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Apple TV plus screeners. I think I talked about that last week on the podcast, uh, but they've released more episodes. So I've been watching more, uh, but, but before we get into that, I want to say, First, I did a quick poll on Twitter because that's how you you find out like what the the entire uh, you know what people are thinking in the entire world is just you know them responding to my Twitter poll. But uh, about fifteen hundred people responded to my Twitter poll, and it was actually shocking how many people. Like thirty seven percent of the people that responded to my Twitter poll didn't even know that Apple TV Plus had launched that it was live. Um, and I, I think Apple's going to have a tough battle even getting the awareness out there to, to know that people can have access to this. <laughs> because I think there's even people that like have bought new iPhones that don't even know that they have a year free to, to, to watch this. I, I'm sure they've gotten emails and stuff, but, um, but sometimes you miss those things. So uh, the other thing I want to talk about is now that it has actually launched live, because I've been watching these things on screeners, which are airplayed from my phone to my Apple TV because Apple doesn't have an app on the Apple TV for screeners, which seems insane, even though Disney Plus has an app for screeners. They uh, also, I just want to add, they also block any other app. Like, I, I use Chromecast, which is like the, the Google way to put stuff on your TV, and the, the Apple screeners will not play on Chromecast because it's not an Apple thing so good job apple you should probably figure something out here with this well i think they're probably trying that that probably is security they're probably trying there's probably some things they can't control in terms of people being able to record it where apple tv like the airplay is kind of protected in a way if that makes sense mm. but that's mm. what i would say i mean a year ago chris i would argue that you're probably right but nowadays, like, they're putting this Apple TV Plus on, like, other devices, like Roku and Amazon. Like, I feel like they're, that, that there's no benefit for them to keep the closed ecosystem with this. Uh, no? Hmm. Uh, no, I'm not saying uh, you're not right. I just I didn't consider that. I'm just making noises over here. <laughs> hmm. uh, I, hmm. I, I will say this. I'm, I'm a huge Apple fanboy, and Apple TV Plus launched, and it's part of their TV app on the Apple TV. I'm not sure how it works on other devices, 
but it's actually kind of hard to find. It's not like its own app. Like the TV app actually like on Apple TV, for those who don't know, like rounds up all TV. Like so it rounds up like you can buy TV shows on iTunes. It rounds up if you have like HBO Now and like those things It rounds up that content into the TV app and tries to sell you on content like Showtime and other like, you know, services you could buy. And Apple TV Plus is just like in there somewhere. And you kind of have to dig down to like uh, like a sub menu to get to the Apple TV part, Apple TV Plus part, which is actually very not. Uh, I don't know. I usually think of Apple as being very consumer facing UI and being very simple, and this is very complicated. If Apple, if you want people to see your shows, you should make it easier for them to see your shows. You should have like just an Apple TV Plus app that has the shows in the app. Anyways, that said, uh, I have been watching more of their shows. I told you last week I was really surprised by the morning show. I had watched the first two episodes at that point. I have now watched the entire uh, first season. And uh, I really, really, really like the morning show. I think it was uh, – I, I will say that I, I think that they, they probably should have given uh, more screeners to press for, of the show because, like, the, the, the they got some – like some divisive reviews on the show and i think it really gets good i I know it takes a few episodes to get there uh but i'm really liking it i I was critical of jennifer aniston last week and she has some really good performances in in some of these episodes uh they i i think unlike you know i know this show is going to get compared to like the sorkin stuff like the the newsroom and studio 60 and it's very easy to see it get compared to that i will say it doesn't suffer the problem of studio 60 where the show within the show actually like has some really compelling dramatic moments where studio 60 i feel like they couldn't uh you know quite reach the, the you know the hilarity of the best of saturday night live or something like that um it, it, it is kind of a little soapy. It is a little kind of on the nose at times. Uh, but when it's at its best, it says some very uh, interesting things. There's uh, an episode episode directed by Michelle McLaren, which is just so great. Uh, there is um, – it explores the great line of this whole Me Too, the, the how complicated it is, system how it's systematic. Um, it doesn't – just paint Steve Carell as you know the evil bad guy, and I think some people might be a little upset about that. But like, I mean, he is definitely the bad guy. I'm not going to say that it makes him sympathetic. Uh, it uh, there's, I'm not allowed to talk spoilers about this, and I wouldn't want to spoil anything for you because I highly recommend the show. But there's one shot in the finale which is masterful, and it's not. Uh, I love one shots like. And this is not a one shot that is masterful because of the cinematography and because it's just so well orchestrated. It's because it connects all the human drama. I think it connects like seven or eight different stories in the in one shot that takes place while they're filming this show. And it's just so, so good. Um, I highly recommend seeing The Morning Show. Uh, the other show I've been watching on Apple TV Plus is uh, For All Mankind. Um, I got to see last week. I told you I'd seen the first two episodes. I've now seen the first eight episodes. So I have not seen the final two. Uh, it, I will say it becomes a, a different, a little bit of a different show in the third episode. And that's not, uh, I don't think that's a spoiler, but I, I do think some people are going to like the first two and maybe not love the directions it goes in. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I, I enjoyed the show. I, 
Uh, I will say that I was more hyped on it in the first two episodes than I was by the end of the, the or the end of the first eight episodes that I watched. Um, I like that th- the show is serialized, and I, you know, I don't. Um, I'm not a television critic, and we've been talking a lot about television on this podcast, so I'm not sure if there's a term for this. But like in modern television, uh, we've gotten so serialized where, you know, each episode leads into the next and, the, the you know, it's not very episodic. But there's still shows like Mad Men where each episode is kind of like its own self-contained story, yet it still gets propelled by the previous episode. And this show does that kind of thing, which I think is very interesting. And um, I, I would say I, I, I probably want a little bit more of that in, in shows. Um but yeah, so I'd recommend For All Mankind, but I would also highly recommend The Morning Show. I know people are saying it's bad, but uh, go uh, go watch that. The The other um, thing I watched on Apple TV Plus is I watched the show C. This is from Stephen Knight. It's directed by Francis Lawrence. Uh, it The premise of the show is an outbreak has reduced humankind to two million people and blinded us. And the, this takes place centuries after that. So... Uh, all the people that live in this world have never known a world that had sight. And uh, it, actually, sight is believed to be a myth. And uh, this uh, show stars Jason Momoa. It looks really expensive, has amazing sound and production design, it has a very inventive battle scene. I will not recommend this at all. It was horrible. So don't watch the... And which is strange because honestly, out of all the Apple TV Plus offerings, I thought C was going to be totally my jam, and it totally is not. So, uh, uh, Ketra wanted to shut it off like ten minutes in, uh, but I don't know. Maybe someone will like it. And uh, one other thing I want to talk about is I watch. I have subscribed to MasterClass. I talked about subscribing to that when Penn and Teller released their MasterClass. Danny Elfman, the composer, just released his MasterClass, and I, I I've watched. Um, I don't know, a good, like, uh, maybe the first fourth of this so far. And it, it's it's really good. You get to a tour of his studio, which is very Burden-esque. Uh, you, I don't know, if you're a fan of filmmaking and just, like, wanting to know how things work, he really explains the process. Like, I didn't really understand what a spotting session is, and that's where, where a filmmaker meets with the composer and goes through the entire film saying what he wants where and stuff like that. And he, he goes into that in depth. It's interesting. He says that some directors will spend two days on a spotting session explaining the whole, you know, what he wants with each scene of the movie. And Tim Burton just spends like, you know, one and a half or two hours and just like the scene, I want some sad music. So if that tells you anything. Um, and I like how honest Danny Elfman is in this masterclass. He gets really heated and he, talks about temp music this is the music that uh filmmakers will edit a film to before the composer comes in and then usually those filmmakers become attached to those those scores and elfman basically like yells at basically 70 percent of of composers out there saying that they're lazy and they're just trying to do the temp the you know just trying to make the director happy and not trying to do stuff original i don't know it's really good it's really insightful i would highly recommend it and lastly, I've been watching Survivor, um, and I know I talked about this. This is the season with the Island of the Idols, and um, this last episode was really interesting 
because at tribal council there was this heated argument over the sexism of the idea of an all women alliance every year on survivor uh, the men always get wor- worried that the the females are going to team together and create their own alliance and you know run the show and um it, it was just this very interesting conversation that you would not think would happen on a network tv show and the climax of a network tv show that was just so smart and so introspective and not something you would expect from survivor so uh i don't know i just want to give uh them a thumbs up for that because i thought that was just really great but um brad what else have you been watching other than disney plus uh a few things um a surprise new edition of Queer Eye came out where they're in Japan and it's like a basically like a limited run of a few episodes that they're doing. Uh, my girlfriend and I watched the first episode and it's really fun. The first person they do uh, is this adorable woman who helps a lot of people in her community and they like they totally make over her house and she's totally super appreciative and just like the cutest woman. Um, and it's really cool to see them kind of like in a different cultural area. They um, they have a uh, a co-host with them, a Japanese co-host who is somebody who is uh, famous in uh, in Japan. She's like she's a kind of a model and pop pop culture figure, and she kind of acts as their guide for things that they don't fully uh, understand, which is kind of interesting. And the one thing that I wondered throughout the entire show that they um, they don't address until the very end was exactly how they were making it work because obviously all five of them. Uh, don't speak Japanese, but they have a translator on hand, and the show is edited in such a way that they just cut all the stuff out so that it allows them to have um, a much better flow for the show because it would be kind of uh, weird. Um, but it's 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 just as charming as any other season of Queer Eye. Um, uh, uh, Kiko Mizuhara is the one who is uh, helps them on their you know d- uh, on the different episodes, and yeah, it's if you like the regular Queer Eye, you just watch this. I think there's four episodes in total, so it's just it's just great to have more episodes of that show because it's such a, such a fun thing to watch. I just want um, to interject and say that Kiko Mizuhara is on the second season of Terrace House, also available on Netflix. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and Brad, I think you're the only one on the staff that has bitten the bullet and watched Little Mermaid live. Yes, I did. Uh, it's 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 funny because uh, we watched this after my girlfriend and I saw The Lighthouse, which I'll get to in a little bit. And somehow this ended up being the weirder movie uh, dealing with the ocean and sea creatures and whatnot. Um, this, this was such a, an odd thing because the previous live performances of musicals like Grease and um, Peter Pan and whatnot, they've, they've all been these big live productions. And this was kind of like that, but it was a hybrid where they used like footage from the animated movie as interludes, where obviously it was probably too difficult to try and pull something off on stage, you know, with the the underwater stuff and the the puppets that you would need to do it, which they still use puppets and they still did some interesting things to recreate the idea of people swimming underwater on stage. Um, but otherwise, it was just kind of a weird um, juxtaposition of these two different things. And so... The the live stuff was not that great. Uh, I will say Queen Latifah knocked it out of the park as Ursula. She was fantastic. Uh, and Shaggy was even pretty entertaining as Sebastian. He was kind of perfect for it, even though they gave him, like, red pants and a shiny red leather jacket with these very small kind of lobster claw fingerless gloves, I guess you could say. 
Um, and so it was just, I don't know, it, it felt kind of lazy. I, I feel like it was probably more fun for people who were there in person to watch it on stage with the screen, you know, uh, behind everything that was happening rather than watching it on TV. Uh, John Stamos was terrible in this as as the cook. Uh, real, real bad. I don't know why anyone thought that was a good idea. But uh, yeah, just just a weird little production that uh, I almost wish I'd have, I'd have gotten high and watched it instead because I probably would have had more fun. <laughs> Okay, and how is the lighthouse? Uh, the lighthouse is so great, but weird and twisted, and uh, like it's, it's a movie that I haven't stopped thinking about since I saw it, and it's just a very uh, odd sort of this descent and spiral into madness with uh, this. You know, there's there's definitely like Greek mythology influences. The performances by Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson are are outstanding. Like they're uh, they're, they're, they're they feel like forces of nature in this movie, Defoe especially, but Pattinson himself, you know, he he has these great moments throughout too, and just this the way this, I, I was almost reminded of The Shining while watching this movie, and I, I Jacob, did you feel that vibe at all? Yeah, I'm gonna paraphrase a friend of mine who said it was uh, The Shining directed by Adam McKay. <laughs> that's that's a very that's <laughs> I like that description a lot actually. Now now that I think about it. Uh, yeah, because there's some definitely there's definitely some weird like childish goofy jokes throughout. Yeah, like it's almost like a <laughs> yeah like a, like stepbrothers, but but by way by way of that. Um, yeah, it, so it's it's a very odd movie. It's definitely not for everybody. Um, I I I def I liked it a lot. I'm not sure if it's something that I want to go out of my way to watch again. But I was captivated and enthralled by every frame of it, and it's uh, it's gorgeously shot too. Man, the black and white photography on this movie uh, is incredible, and it's it's shot on a I think it's like a, a one by by nineteen uh, aspect ratio, so it's like it's almost a, a square on screen, so it's not a widescreen movie, and that aspect of it really gives it this kind of old fashioned feel, especially some of the wider shots with um with the storm that's raging uh, and things like that. But it's uh, it's a gorgeously shot movie, very well acted. Um, but if, you know, if you're one of those people who doesn't like weird kind of movies that take you out of your, your comfort zone, you might not enjoy it. But as somebody, you know, who, who occasionally likes movies like this, I was definitely, um, captivated by it. Okay. And, uh, what else have you been watching? Uh, so I forgot to mention this on the previous episode, but just before Halloween, I saw Countdown which is this this movie about an app that you download it and it tells you when you're going to die. Um, and some people get very long countdowns, like, oh man, I'm going to live for another 57 years. But then some people get, oh, you're going to die in a few days. Uh, and it's kind of like, it's like this mix of The Ring with Final Destination, but it's a lot more dumb, real dumb. <laughs> um, just Just cheap jump scares and... Like, the rules of it don't really make any sense as far as how the app works. Um, and Tom Segura's in this movie for some reason. Uh, it's just, I don't know, It. I was so, I had fun watching it because I'm like, man, this is so stupid. But it is not a good horror movie by any means. It has suspense, but, uh, you know, for, just for the sake of it, really. And it's just, yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I just can't recommend this movie. I, I would say watch any of the Final Destination movies instead. <laughs> Okay, and you finally saw Terminator Dark Fate. Where, where do you lie on this? Because some critics really enjoyed this. Some think it's just dumb and stupid. I really liked it, actually. I was surprised by how much I liked this movie. 
Um, I, I think it has great action set pieces. I like what it does with Arnold Schwarzenegger's T-800. Mackenzie Davis is totally a badass in this movie. Uh, Linda Hamilton is outstanding in this movie. There's um, there's kind of this great passing of the torch between them in a way. Um, I like that the way it's... Some of the other Terminator movies, they've had a problem with how they use comedy in their movies. And it, it, it started to become really cheesy um, in the sequels that followed Terminator 2. And this one has some really great laughs in it. Like, not not to the level of where it's like, oh, this is totally a comedy. But there are just some great jokes that come out of nowhere that are really funny. A lot of them come from Schwarzenegger. Uh, some of them come from Linda Hamilton, too. But it's just, uh, Natalia Reyes is also great in this. She's kind of the new savior, the new John Connor, if you will. And, yeah, I, I found myself really enjoying uh, the hell out of this movie. And I, I was very surprised by that. And it makes me wish that this movie didn't bomb because I really would like to see where they were going to take this next. But they're probably not going to take it anywhere next because I don't think they're going to make another one of these, Brad. I know. It's it's unfortunate. And it's just it's a shame because it's the, the previous Terminator sequel sucked so bad that everyone was like, nah, I'm not taking a chance on this. I, If anything, maybe we'll get lucky and it'll find you know a firm life on home video and it'll be enough that they'll consider making another one. Okay. HT, finally, what have you been watching? You guys remember, I didn't have many plans for my Halloween night last week, but I did do a double feature of some not too spooky movies, but uh, sort of Halloween themed. The, the first was Dial N for Murder, which is a an Alfred Hitchcock movie that I hadn't yet seen and I had always wanted to. Um, and this stars Grace Kelly as a uh, wealthy wife of an ex-tennis um, athlete who... Um, and has an affair with an old school friend. And when his, her husband finds out, he decides to plot uh, hire someone else to murder her and uh, plots what he calls the perfect murder. And so uh, Dylan for Murder is, you know, it's pretty classic Hitchcock. It's much smaller scale than um, some of his later movies. I would compare it more to the sort of play-like Hitchcock movies that you'll see that are um, something like Rope or... Uh, you know, something that's a much more small scale. It doesn't take place in that many settings. It's mostly in the apartment where uh, all the, the attempted murder and all the, the other events take place. But despite that, it's a real thrilling watch. And um, it is, like, pretty simple. But uh, Hitchcock does, you know, work wonders with the, the small spaces. And uh, it's such a great display of suspense from you know the master of suspense uh and it was actually a great watch to um great movie to watch after i had been sort of you know trying to scratch that parasite itch and uh i had seen it twice but uh i just i just kept thinking about parasite and um there are some great hitchcocking elements in parasite that dial m for murder uh you know has on display as well um there are some interesting things about this movie that i wondered how hitchcock kind of made his had circumnavigated the sort of uh, more puritanical Hayes Code um, censorship at the time because uh, Grace Kelly's character is a woman who you know has an affair outside of her marriage, and that's something that's usually punishable either narratively, um, like she, she would die or she would be sent in prison. Um, and I guess she kind of does, uh, but uh, somehow she ends up getting uh, away with uh, you know being sort of the hero of this piece despite uh doing one of the uh the sins that the Hayes code would have usually punished so that was kind of interesting to see um and uh i also on halloween night watched train to busan which was the kind of second 
start to scratching that parasite itch. Uh, not just because it's a Korean film, but because it deals sort of with the, the themes of social class and social hierarchies that Parasite does. And uh, this was um, a movie I'd seen before, so this was just kind of a rewatch. Um, and it is a perfect zombie movie. You don't really have anything to add to it. It's great. Um, another, A couple other movies I watched. Uh, um, I watched The Apartments because I was kind of in the mood for a screwball comedy. I couldn't find the ones I particularly wanted to see, so I saw that The Apartment was streaming, and I had never seen it, so I always wanted to check it out. And um, it's actually much darker and sharper and more savage than I anticipated it being. This is a Billy Wilder movie. He has directed one of my favorite films, uh, Sunset Boulevard. So I guess I should have expected it because he has a real way of kind of social satire that uh, sneaks into even the more comedic of his movies. And The Apartment uh, stars Jack Lemmon as an insurance worker who is really ambitious and wants to rise up in the ranks. And his bosses use that to their advantage by um, using his apartment, which is kind of centrally located in Manhattan, as uh, their sort of place to hold trysts outside of their marriages. And he does it so that he can get a promotion in his job. And uh, he has a crush on the elevator girl, played by Shirley MacLaine, who's just really magical and wonderful in this. Uh, but she turns out to be helpful one of the women having an affair with uh, one of his bosses. So it uh, there's all sorts of um, dramas that ensue, but it is a little bit sadder and more melancholic than I anticipated. And I quite I liked it a lot. This is just I, a movie that I really loved and um, really enjoyed watching. So that's The Apartment, directed by Billy Wilder. As soon as you said uh, that you wanted to watch a screwball comedy, <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> this is, like, so the opposite of that. But it's such a great movie. I mean, it's fine. I actually really like my my comedies, my romantic comedies, with, you know, a really bittersweet or sad uh, thread through them. So this was an even better. It, it turned out even better than I anticipated. So. Nice. Um, and uh, I also uh, went on a work trip recently that I can't talk about, but I always use this time on the plane to catch up on movies. Usually I use it to catch up on bad movies that I wouldn't want to pay for or spend my time doing outside of being stuck on a plane for two hours. But um, I, and I had put this question to the Slack and was told not to do it. Uh, I wanted to, I was like, should I watch Hellboy? But then I didn't want to waste my time doing it. And I decided not to. I, I love how all of us who had not seen Hellboy told you not to watch Hellboy. <laughs> I know. And Twitter told me to not to as well, but I also didn't really give much of a choice. Um, instead, uh, I saw that this, the flight that I was on had both happy death day and happy death day to you. So um, my two hour flight, uh, I managed to watch happy death day, to my destination, and then Happy Death Day 2 back. Um, and I really enjoyed both of them. Happy Death Day is a real fun twist on the slasher movie. It's You know, you might have heard of it. It's a Groundhog Day twist in which uh, this sorority girl who is kind of a bad person uh, keeps getting killed on her birthday and being is forced to relive that day over and over again until she can find her killer. And the story itself and the twists are pretty simple. Um, the characters are a little bit cardboard, but Jessica Roth is just so fantastic in this. She's so fun to watch. And uh, Christopher Landon uh, directs this with such style and with such... Um, and energy that uh, I really enjoyed watching it. I would describe it more as a horror comedy. And um, 
that's something that I've just really enjoyed watching, despite the fact that there was a young child behind me on the plane, and I'm sorry for traumatizing you, child. <laughs> um, and uh, on the way back, I watched Happy Death Day to You, which is a uh, very different from the first film, despite it being kind of a similar premise, where the first film was more of a straightforward slasher flick. The second kind of ended up being more of a sci-fi film, uh, which was also really fun. And uh, I enjoyed that sort of um, rejuvenation of this premise a lot. They didn't just want to retread the story as as, um, as uh, we saw, like, which w- probably would have been very very uh, tired if they did the same thing for Happy Death Day to You. But um, I really liked how they changed it to sort of more sci-fi comedy with some slasher elements. Um, but it was uh, it was really fun and um, basically dealt with interdimensional travel and uh, in a way that was really simple and um, funny and just enjoyable. So that's Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You, available on your local flights. <laughs> I, I need to watch both of these. I've, I've been recommended these by multiple people, and it sounds like... Uh, they're, they're both on HBO right now. That, too. That, too. Okay, and uh, H.E., you watched something else? Yeah, because I couldn't really get the screwball comedy uh, fix I needed with the apartment, though I loved it a lot, uh, I ended up rewatching His Girl Friday, uh, I think, on Amazon Prime, and that's a movie that um, stars Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. Uh, a real great, just... Newspaper man, um, fast-talking uh, movie in which Cary Grit is kind of an asshole. And so there's not really many people to root for in this movie. There aren't really great journalism practices either. But it's just so charming and so fun. Um, although the Amazon transfer is really bad, I have to say. It's very grainy and almost took away from re-watching this movie. So uh, I don't know how I can fix it except putting it out there, hey, Amazon, Fix your His Girl Friday uh, transfer. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating and drinking this week? Oh, I got all sorts of new junk. Um, So I stepped at a 7-Eleven recently on the way back from the uh, airport after I went to Pixar. uh, And I found the uh, 7-Eleven exclusive fried onion ring flavored Pringles. uh, And they're pretty good. The, the, The fried onion ring... Flavor is basically the exact same seasoning, I think, that they probably use on Funyuns. Uh, but because they're on Pringles, I think that I like them actually better than Funyuns. I think Funyuns probably are better like in smaller doses, but the Pringles I felt like were um, maybe for better or for, for better or worse easier to snack on. Uh, and I think I enjoyed the taste a little bit more. Um, since it's now Christmas season, quote unquote, now that Halloween's over, the holiday candy has started to roll out, and there's new sweet cinnamon Kit Kats, which are pretty good. They kind of taste like uh, a chocolate dipped churro, thanks to the wafer in the Kit Kats and the, the flavor of the sweet cinnamon. There's been a lot of churro flavored things recently, and I don't know, it's a little inundating, and I'm I wouldn't say that I'm sick of it, but I just feel like they need to I don't know change up the flavors a little bit more. But they they all seem to arrive at the same time. Everyone figures out, oh, everyone likes this flavor right now. Let's put it in everything. And uh, there's a I got a new um, ice cream that is only available at Target. Um, it's their like market pantry brand, I think it is. And I wanted to get it because I I like peanut butter ice cream. I like chocolate peanut butter ice cream. And this is a peanut butter and jelly ice cream. And so it's it's mostly peanut butter, but it has swirls of actual jelly inside of it, like the same kind of jelly that you would put on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And it is really good. 
Uh, I it's probably one of the like um, best newer ice creams that I've tried as far as different flavors are concerned. It's um, it just it tastes pretty much like you know what you would expect a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to taste like. Um, and so yeah, that's if you find that at Target, I definitely recommend trying it. Uh, Krispy Kreme also recently came out with uh, some new donuts. They're ba- basically pie inspired. Um, they have a uh, a chocolate cream and they have an apple and I th- um, I think it's cherry actually or maybe yeah it's got it's got to be cherry. Um, but yeah, those are uh, they have uh, um, fillings inside of them. They're kind of designed to look like pies with the, the crumbles on top and um, the the swirl of the of frosting that they put on top of them. Uh, and they're all really good. The um, Krispy Kreme does uh, fill donuts pretty well, and the the, the filling in them is actually uh, pretty pretty dang good. And then just just as a PSA for everybody out there who happens to enjoy holiday things, uh, like I do when they come back around, the Merry Mashup Mountain Dew and the White Fudge Covered Oreos are both back in stores. Uh, they are um, the Merry Mashup Mountain Dew is a newer favorite of mine that I'm glad that they brought back. Um, it's, uh, a, uh, a pomegranate and cranberry flavor, flavored, like infused soda, I think. Um, and so that is, uh, that's a good one. And you can get that in stores again in cans and bottles and the fud- white fudge Oreos. It's just a favorite for me. They always come back around Christmas and I will get them every single time they come back out. Yeah, for sure. I, I love those white fudge Oreos. If only I was not on a diet, uh, speaking of which, let's, let's move on to what we've been playing I think uh, last week or a week before I mentioned on the podcast. Uh, oh no, we were talking about how Netflix was Netflix was testing the ability to watch things at like one point five and two times speed, and uh, I kind of uh, gave a. Uh, audible eye roll to all the people that listen to podcasts at a higher speed saying that it, it, it that that takes away from the uh, comedic timing and whatever and uh, Ben came out in support of the the uh, about uh, what would you call that increased speed uh, speed listening uh, speed I don't know <laughs> I don't know uh, yeah I'm trying to think of wording uh, and uh, would not say how fast he listens to thing although I suspect it's it's higher than 1.5 speed and uh, I, I, we did get emails. We got, uh, we got like a half dozen emails from uh, from listeners uh, in support of the increased speed podcast listening, and everybody trying to make their point and their give their like credence to why it's okay. Um, I understand. Like, I understand this podcast is not art. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is not cinema. This is not. Uh, the Irishman, you know, we should get pissed off if they start, if people start watching The Irishman at 1.5 speed, but maybe not podcasts. So I'm not like, I'm not angry, whatever. But like after reading all these things, I, I decided to give it another chance. So I, I went into my podcast app. I, I use, um, what do I use? Insta or I use um, Overcast. And they offer to, they, they offer not only to increase the speed, but you can actually get rid of silences. So you can do both. I found that I I'm actually enjoying it more now. Now that I've been convinced, I'm enjoying it more. Although I I can't get quite up to 1.5 speed because that like people are talking way too fast. Maybe it's the podcast I listen to um, with people that talk fast already. Um, but I don't understand how people could possibly do this at two times speed. So Ben, I, I'm putting you on the spot. How fast do you listen to podcasts? 
Uh, most of the time, it's two times speed. How? For me. How? I, I don't know. I don't know if it's the ones that I listen to are fine, but like I was listening to a podcast the other day where Antonio Banderas was on as a guest, <laughs> and he speaks so fast um, that I had to drop it down to one point five, and I felt like, all right, yeah, that you know, there. This is a good example in case you ever ask me about this in the future. So, um, yeah, sometimes I do have to drop it down, but I think like for most of the time, it's too you know, two times speed. And like I said before, you know, if it's a, if it's something where um, I think that the context uh, of the real time audio is really, really important, then I will drop it to, you know, regular speed. Um, but for, you know, movie podcasts and stuff like that. Yeah. Two times. That's where it's at for me. I, I was... Monstrous. This is absolutely monstrous. <laughs> I, I have both of you. I'm so ashamed. <laughs> Jacob, I was on your side, and then I give it a I give it a shot. I don't I, I think I'm at like 1.4 times. Like I think 1.5 is a little too much. 2. Uh, 2.0 is way too much. But I have like I think I listen to 18 podcasts a week now between board games, movies, and magic, uh, and some other things, some theme park. Um, so I have a lot of stuff to listen to. And I would love to be able to get get it done in half the time, but I can't do that two times speed. But uh, but I'm gonna be trying this 1.4 times for from now on. And uh, Jacob, maybe one day we will convince you to join the dozens. Peter, <laughs> Peter, yes, Jacob. Attorney, my resignation <laughs> is magic editor of slash show.com. Uh, Jacob, what have you been playing this week? Oh, Peter, I only want to play Crokinole forever and ever. It It's immediately one of my favorite games of all time. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Crokinole is a very old billiards game from the 1860s and still around today. It's very popular in Canada and the Northwest especially. Uh, less less you know well-known in the United States, but still has a following. And it's just a, a, um, a wood board about three feet across, circle, and it's highly polished, and you want to flick little wooden discs uh, across it to score in the center or hit opponents' discs and knock them into other areas. And it's extremely simple. You can teach it in about a minute. And it is one of the most fun games I've ever played. There's so much depth and strategy, despite the simple rule set. And I've played it for hours and hours and hours with my family. And everybody, no matter their game experience and their age, loved it. The one issue with Crokinole is that there is a uh, barrier to entry. You can't just go out and buy a Crokinole board casually. They don't, there are some available um, for like 150 bucks that are like you know cheaper. You can idea that's it. The cheaper board, 150 bucks. I had mine custom built by a guy who only builds crokinole boards, and it was more expensive than that. And I'm glad I did because it's a beautiful work of art, and he did an amazing job. But it's one of those games where if you are a serious tabletop gamer who loves dexterity games, uh, you know, like acquire physicality and like you know timing, it. It is straight up one of the absolute best games ever devised. I am addicted to it. Uh, it can be no matter if you're good at it or bad at it. It is always fun. It's fun to watch. It's fun to play. But but, play but here's the thing, Jacob. I yes. got into board gaming because I'm not good. I'm not good at physicality. I'm not good at timing. I'm not good at sports. So I want to like move things around on a board. Yeah. Well, this is also like, you're not actually running around, Peter. You're using. You're flicking with your hands. But but you know. I know. I know. Uh, it, it, so it, it is. I'm no good at it. My sister and her husband took to it like crazy. They would become like instantly great at it. And they were destroying me, but I still kept on playing because I was having so much fun. Uh, so, uh, Peter, I know I talked to you uh, offline. Yeah. What will it take for you to try Crokinole, especially with that price uh, 
uh, with the barrier to entry on the price. Well, I think that's what it, I think what you, the what you're getting at is the problem here is the price, the barrier to entry. Like if I could go to a board game convention and play it and try it out someone else's copy and not have to pay, you know, 150 or however much you spent, I don't even know, uh, <laughs> to play it. Like I feel like then then I would know if I liked it or not enough to invest the money. Maybe a game cafe has it or something. Yeah, maybe yeah. a gaming cafe. We have some around in Los Angeles, so maybe, maybe I'll have to check that out. I saw you post a picture of this, Jacob, and it made me intrigued, and I want to try to play it. But now that you told me that it costs so much, now I'm also leery. Yeah, yeah, for, it's it's it, an investment. I, I, do so a, it, I do think you can get a cheap one for less than 150 Not to say that that is good, but... Yeah, I know. I was hesitant because I was doing my research. Everything I read said just be careful of buying cheap boards because having a flat polished properly made board is vital to a good game experience and i mean i'll, I'll be I'll, i got mine for 250 and i got it through a place called uh helensky crokinole uh i can google that and like there's a guy who literally said you know uh, he, you email him you say i want a board he says okay I'll, I'll email you back in six months when it's ready and that's what i did oh really and he, yeah and then he said do you, do you still want it and i said yes i paid him and he shipped it and it was and the board is amazing and uh, there are other people who make them too and I've seen some in my local gaming stores, like, you know, 150, 180, uh, but they're not nearly as pretty. They, they look cheaper. Uh, maybe, maybe they play well. Maybe, maybe they, they, when you're on the table, they provide the exact same game. But mine is a work of damn art. <laughs> I love how it looks and how and it's being displayed in my game room. So uh, I really want to hear from listeners. Uh, do you play Crokinole? Do you have any advice for uh, people like Peter and Brad who are intrigued, but, you know, don't want to drop 250 bucks on a good board? Let us know. Seriously. Well, here's the question to you. Jacob, because you obviously contacted this guy like six months ago and you had interest in buying this $250 board. Had you played it somewhere beforehand? I had not played it, uh, but literally every single person I know who's a serious tabletop gamer has said that you got to play Crokinole. It is one of the classics. I remember uh, the board game website that I love, Shove and Sit Down, did a video review of Crokinole where they also broke down and played Crokinole and like fell in love with it. And I said, damn it, I guess I got to play Crokinole. And it's one of those cases where I felt guilty doing it. I felt so guilty paying 250 bucks for a game I had not yet played uh, based purely on, you know, the word of mouth. The fact that it's always ranked high and the greatest games of all time. But you know what? I It, it speaks for itself. Um, when, let's put it this way. When, when I brought the board home, my family was already texting me trying to figure out where can we buy their own boards. They were so addicted to it. Hmm. I mean, it does look like you can get one for like about seventy dollars on Amazon, but yeah, you're probably the quality probably isn't as good. Yeah, and there also they maybe a smaller size because I, I there's a full tournament size which is three feet across, and there's a smaller like more like eighteen inch ones that you know are just much smaller and portable and cheaper, but may not give you the full experience. Yeah, and I know some people are probably thinking that uh, that Jacob's insane for investing so much money in a game that he hasn't played like what if he didn't even like it uh but i do that uh a couple times a year on kickstarter for about the same amount of money so and for me this this is also a case where um if i had not liked crokinole a well-made board um handmade by somebody who knows what they're doing i could have flipped it for the same price got my money back and somebody else would have been happy so that was my thought but thankfully i loved it okay that brings us to the end of today's slash home daily you can find 
all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find links to those vlogs I mentioned, to Ben's Q&A of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, to uh, the webcomic that HT recommended all in the show notes. You can find this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. And please write and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. Jacob, we're running like really long on this episode. I think we're gonna have to cut out this uh this whole joke thing segment. No, you can cut out literally everything else. This is what the people are here for. The people are here for the Gantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery. Sharp retorts, reposts, caustic quips, and impolite put downs by Louis A. Safian. <laughs> Do we have to? Yes. Uh, I've opened up the page two hundred and fifty one. The cranks section. Uh, Peter, the bone of contention in uh, in most of your arguments is above your ears. The bone. Uh, the bone of contention <laughs> in most of your arguments is above your ears. You're a bonehead, Peter. Oh, okay. And Brad, there may be some rare moment during the day when he isn't disgruntled, but he's certainly far from being gruntled. <laughs> <laughs> sure. What a loser Ben is. He made the... <laughs> just, just that, that, that's the funniest one right there. <laughs> what a loser Ben is. He may be gripping the winner's hand, but he's glaring at his throat. Wow. Okay. Uh, when Brad praises you, it's like having the hangman praise your pretty throat. What's up with the throat I, stuff here? Why'd I get two? <laughs> HT, oh, yeah. did I do two for Brad? Yeah. yeah. Oh, in that case, uh, Brad, you have two today. <laughs> uh, Chris wins all of his arguments, but no friends. Aww. Aww. That was sad. <laughs> HT has a chip on her shoulder. It's easy to understand. There's wood higher up. Uh, uh, wait, what? HT has a chip on her shoulder. <laughs> no. It's easy to understand. There's wood higher up. Didn't okay. you hear HT? It's easy to understand. Oh, oh. No, I have no idea. I don't get no. that either. I think I the chip has fallen down from. Is that Ben? Ben again. <laughs> this looks good for Ben. Ben, he'd better keep his words soft and sweet. One of these days, he may have to eat them. <laughs> yep hmm. okay then thanks everybody for listening we'll see you next week